0: One of the most uh, traumatic events of the 20th century is one uh, that I did did not know all that much about until recently. In fact, it's one of the most traumatic events in human history, and while I'm sure I heard a a reference to it uh, in some class somewhere along the way, especially since one of my majors in college was government with an emphasis in international relations, I did not really know all that much about this event until recently. I'd somehow uh, missed it. And so when I started to read up on it, it became an important reminder that no matter how much I, I think I know, uh, there's always so much more to learn. And in this case, uh, I learned about it in a most unexpected way. In the Dowd household, we're big fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And this summer, uh, Disney Plus had a miniseries that I honestly was not all that excited about. But it turned out to be really, really good. I'm talking about Miss Marvel. Now, I kept calling it Miss Mazel, uh, but it turns out that the marvelous Mrs. Mazel is a very different show. <laughs> and we did not watch it with our two boys. Miss Marvel is the story of a young American girl from a, a Pakistani Muslim family who receives a gift from her grandmother in Pakistan. Uh, it includes a bracelet. A magical bracelet that, of course, taps into a superpower that she did not know she has. But um, it's not the show or the superhero angle that's on my mind today. Instead, it's the historical event that plays a key part in the plot of this show. Something called the partition and when the characters in Miss Marvel started talking about the partition, I actually had to Google it to figure out what they were referring to. Now, I am sure that many of you know a fair amount about the partition. Even if you did not know it before this summer, uh, you may have seen coverage of it recently because this month marks the 75th anniversary of this incredibly traumatic event that continues to shape modern uh, geopolitical. Uh, Politics, the the geopolitical world. In case you were in the dark like I was, until recently, uh, in 1947, India won its independence from Britain. If you've seen the movie Gandhi, you probably know about this. And when it did, uh, it was partitioned into two countries, um, a division driven by religious differences. So, Pakistan was established as a predominantly Muslim country, India became a predominantly Hindu country. And 75 years ago this month, um, as a result of the partition, there was one of the largest mass migrations in human history, as more than 15 million people resettled in what was suddenly two different countries, uh, based entirely on their religious affiliation. And not only that, the partition was accompanied by um, unthinkable secular and religious and political violence, in addition to the general chaos of one of the largest mass migrations in human history, it's actually estimated that more than a million people died as a result of the partition, and that's surely a low estimate. The actual death toll may be uh, twice as high as that. The power of storytelling in a miniseries like Miss Marvel is that you get you get deeper than the horrific magnitude of the numbers to get a sense of the impact of an event like the partition on the lives of individual human beings. Uh, I know this slide's a little bit dark, but at one point in the series, Ms. Marvel's brother is getting married, and the parents begin talking around the dinner table at, to his non-Pakistani fiancé about that awful time. The memory's still fresh and painful, Three quarters of a century later. And the brother says to his fiance every family has a story of the partition. Stories that, that shape and influence and sometimes continue to traumatize families for generations. I appreciated uh, this superhero miniseries of all things for not only helping me to become more informed about an important and tragic historic event, but also uh, for bringing to life the, the plight of people who survive massive disruptions of a kind that I have a hard time fathoming as a 21st century American. Great, great storytelling has the power to uh, inspire compassion even as it teaches us. And all of this is on my mind today because of where we are in the story of the Exodus and because of something that Reagan uh, said last, last week in her sermon. This is week three of our back-to-school sermon series, Into the Wilderness, the story of Moses and Miriam. We've been exploring uh, the foundational event in the history of the Israelites um, as God delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. So, a couple weeks ago in week one, I talked about the revelation of God to Moses at the burning bush and about how uh, God responds to the needs of the world most often through the work of God's people. And then last week in week two, Reagan focused on the story of Miriam. It's Moses' sister. In particular, Miriam's celebration of God's victory over Egypt at the Red Sea. And, and Reagan called our attention to a, a crucial point that we absolutely must understand before we read our text for today, that, that God's people, having been oppressed for more than four centuries in Egypt, and then uh, suddenly having been told to pick up all of their stuff and immediately get on the on the road, as it were, because they were leaving Egypt at that very moment, and then having been saved from Pharaoh's army at the very last minute, just at the point when it looked like all was lost, Reagan reminded us that God's people, at this point of the story, were in the midst of an incredibly chaotic, an incredibly unexpected, an incredibly disorienting moment in the history of our relationship with God which means that we should be sympathetic when we read about their uncertainty and about their grumbling and about their lack of confidence in what comes next. All of which is crucial to remember as we pick up the story today at a point when the Israelites need all the benefit of the doubt that we can muster. So uh, God has led God's people to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, same place, While Moses is with God on the mountain receiving the law of the covenant, the people make a golden calf to worship. The 32nd chapter of Exodus recalls this famous uh, sad story of God's people making an idol for themselves. And what we're reading today is the aftermath of that event. All right, so our third graders with their new Bibles, this is your moment Um, Surely, uh, over the course of the past year, year and a half, when we put up the scripture, um, y'all have noticed that we put two different Bible references up there. The one on the left is for the Bibles in the pews in front of you in case you wanted to read along. Most people follow along on the screen. Of course, that's fine. That's why we have it up on the screen. Um, But then the second, the one on the right, is the Spark Bible reference, which is the Bible that we give to our third graders. So, this is going to be on page 97 In the Spark Bible, I'm going to read uh, the first six verses of the 33rd chapter of Exodus. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. And go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Don't worry. It's not every passage of scripture has names like that that you got to read along with. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard these harsh words, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you, to you. Therefore, the Israelites stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in case you're new to the faith or maybe uh, not familiar with some of the stories from scripture, Exodus 32 recounts the story of how God's people um, got anxious waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain. Exodus tells us he was up there for 40 days And 40 nights. So it's not like Moses goes up the mountain and five minutes later, the people start wondering where he is. This is 40 days and 40 nights that he's up on the mountain. And for us to understand the story, it's crucial to remember that they were in the midst of this unexpected mass migration, this incredibly chaotic moment in their history. We're told that there are 600,000 men plus the women and children. That's the way Exodus puts it. On the move into the wilderness. And as Reagan reminded us last week, this is a moment of of chaos for the people of God. This is a moment of disorientation. Having been in Egypt for more than 400 years, they are on their way to a land about which they had only heard stories around the dinner table. So it's understandable, I think, that they were uneasy about what was before them. So, while Moses is up on the mountain, they insist that his brother Aaron make something tangible for them to worship. And we have to remember that they had spent four centuries living among people uh, whose gods were depicted all around them. (laughs) This was a normal thing for them in the culture in which they were raised. Aaron tells them to gather up all the gold they have, much of which was plundered from the Egyptians. That's what we read in Exodus 3 a couple of weeks ago. And he makes for them the image of an idol, a golden calf. This is uh, Mark Chagall's um, depiction of it from 1966. This image of an idol is a direct violation of what they will learn is the second commandment. But remember, presumably they don't know that yet because Moses hasn't come back down from the mountain. And we're told that, that God sees their idol worship and sends Moses down to stop it. There is quite a fuss when he does. I'll leave it to you to read the details in that 32nd chapter if you'd like. And the thing is, I used to be really super judgy about this whole incident, wondering just, just how in the world God's people could be so brazenly unfaithful on the cusp of their... Salvation, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. How could they possibly uh, be so unfaithful, I used to think. But uh, that's from my perspective as a 21st century American Christian who's heard this story my whole life. <laughs> with the benefit of thousands of years of, of faith history, I know how it turns out. I know that God's gonna stick with them. I know that it all turns out okay. They didn't know that. And more specific, uh, more specifically to our point for today, I've never been a refugee. (laughs) I've never been in their shoes. I've always known security and peace and stability. Thank God. I'm not part of a group that's been away from home for 430 years. Thank God. I've never known oppression at the hands of a tyrant. Thank God. And I've never been asked to pick up my life and my wife, and my kids, and head into the wilderness in this moment of chaos and insecurity. Thank God, I've never been in their shoes. And so it's probably best for me to be gracious (laughs) with the people whose response to a crisis moment was to seek a sense of security. That's all they were doing, albeit in a way that they shouldn't have. I mean it's true that the the whole golden calf incident is a mystery to me but but people often respond to a crisis in inexplicable ways well thank god that our god is the god of second chances (laughs) in the first part of our reading for today god is clearly angry telling moses that god will not go with the people on the rest of their journey, but because God is a God of second chances, God will send an angel to lead them to the promised land. Thankfully, of course, we know that's not how the story ends. So back to a few more verses, Uh, chapter 33, this time's on page 98 of those spark Bibles, if y'all want to pull it out. It doesn't look like there's any big names in this one, so this will be easier to follow. Verses 12 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He, God, said My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, implying not them. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Amen. It's an easy trap for followers of Jesus to fall into, I think, to believe that that the Old Testament God is a God of law and judgment, and the New Testament God is a God of grace and forgiveness. Sometimes we try to make it easy on ourselves by categorizing these two books in this way. And to be fair, the the perceptions of God by the authors of the Old and New Testaments do indeed seem to differ in places, sometimes very dramatically. But in response to the, the crisis of the golden calf incident, here at the very moment of our salvation history when the law is being given to God's people, this is the law moment, there's there's no small amount of grace on display as well. God does not, in fact, abandon God's people despite their lapse in faith. An important part of Moses' story is that he, he repeatedly intercedes on behalf of God's people. God's faithful in general and certainly the leaders of God's people in particular are called to be gracious, after all. And sure enough, God responds to Moses' request for a do-over, <laughs> Which, of course, is great news for us all because both both the saintliest saint and the most inveterate sinner alike, all of us, face crisis moments in our journeys of faith. None of us is perfect. None of us has it all figured out. None of us is immune from the occasional misstep or moment of doubt. Now, just as with Moses' encounter with the burning bush, our own faith experiences are often not as as dramatic as the ones we read about in Scripture, which is to say few of us uh, experience a crisis in our faith, self-inflicted or otherwise, as audacious as the golden calf incident. But, but crises are a part of life, and they're a part of faith. And Scripture is exceedingly clear from beginning to end, from the opening verses of the book of Genesis to the closing verses of the book a revelation which is to say at literally every step of the way in the great salvation history of the judeo-christian tradition we are promised and we are reminded that the god of grace is with us no matter what and as our as our third graders begin their lifelong journey with this most important book in any of our lives they're going to discover that foundational message of a gracious god is clearly repeated over and over again. So two weeks ago, I closed with a quote by a theologian named Frederick Buechner. He's a a pastor and a thinker whose writing has inspired me for 20 years now. And just a few days after that sermon, uh, Buechner died at the age of 96 after a long, productive life and ministry. And so in his memory, that's only fitting that I close today with his thoughts on the idea of grace and how God is with us always, perhaps especially in our crisis moments. It was way back in 1973, he he wasn't much younger then than I am now, that he wrote a book called Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC. And he wrote this. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are. Because the party would not have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you. I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Buechner writes, from the perspective of God, like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if, you, only if you reach out and take it. And maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. <laughs> Friends, near the very beginning of our story with God, as the people of God went into the wilderness, we read that God was with them in their toughest moments, in their worst moments moments, in their hardest moments, in moments of chaos, in moments of disorientation, in moments of crisis, Scripture assures us and then reassures us again and again that God is with us, that God is on our side, that God's grace is sufficient through it all. Thank God. Amen. Amen.